Glad to be with you this morning. I thank you for those of you who prayed for me this past week. Uh, last Sunday was a struggle. I was uh, sick and getting sicker and um, actually spent Monday and Tuesday most of the day in bed sleeping. And that's highly unusual for me. To uh, I slept till 1230 Monday and that just doesn't happen. I was thinking about that and uh, I thought maybe the problem is is that on Sundays I don't get as much sleep as the rest of you do. You know who you are. So I really am grateful to the Lord for his sustaining grace. Glad to be back with you. And uh, to dig into the word of God this morning. In October of 1978, nearly 300 prominent evangelical leaders and scholars gathered together in Chicago, Illinois, for a conference that was sponsored by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. This gathering was in response to a perception of a growing threat to the evangelical movement from those that were committed to theological liberalism and in particular their assaults and attacks upon the inerrancy and the integrity of the scriptures. So there in Chicago in this three-day conference, all of these significant evangelical leaders gathered together and produced a document entitled The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. This particular statement has three parts. It begins with a summary statement, and then it is followed by 19 articles in which there is an affirmation and a denial. We affirm this, we deny that. And then it closes out with an accompanying exposition of the issues raised in those 19 articles. The statement on inerrancy included some very important clarifications for our understanding of exactly what inerrancy means and that we can affirm together. For example, they said that inerrancy, and rightfully so here, the concept of inerrancy applies only to the original manuscripts not to the copies or the translations of those manuscripts. And although the manuscripts themselves, that is Paul's original letter to the church at Rome, for example, no longer exists, they can be inferred on the basis of the thousands of existing copies and fragments of full copies. So the concept of inerrancy applies to what is called the autographer or the original manuscript and the translations that we hold in our laps are inerrant to the degree that they conform to those original manuscripts. And by the way, you can have a tremendous level of confidence in the Bible that you have on your lap that you are indeed holding the very word of God. Furthermore, they agreed, and I think this is important for us to just be reminded of, that inerrancy does not refer to a woodenly literal interpretation, but it allows for 
figurative, poetic, and what is called phenomenological language, meaning we don't get up in the morning and say, what a beautiful earth turn. We get up and we say, what a beautiful sunrise, although we all know that the sun doesn't rise, the earth turns. And that these various linguistic features have to have to be interpreted in light of the author's original intent, whether he is intending symbolic language or literal language. In 1988, the council disbanded. In the 10 years they were together, they produced two other statements. And many thought when the council disbanded that the crisis had been averted and that the danger was over. But in the decades that have followed 1988, it has become apparent that the battlefield with regard to the word of God has shifted from the concept of inerrancy to the authority of the scriptures. Today, most evangelicals still affirm inerrancy, but it is the authority of those inerrant scriptures to govern their lives which many question in both print and practice. So here's the question. Do the inerrant scriptures trump all other sources of human authority in determining how we will live and think in the 21st century? And that is no small question. Do these inerrant scriptures trump all other sources of human authority in determining how we will live and think in the 21st century? I've entitled the message this morning, Jesus, Scripture, and Us. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at verses 17 through 20 together. And as we look at this passage of Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, continuing our study here in the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to find four critical statements regarding the Scriptures so that we understand how important it is to rightly understand and obey them. Let me read the text for you. Do not think, Jesus says, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Very, very sober words. The context here, as you might remember that this particular section follows right after Jesus establishing the reality that his disciples are both salt and light in a dark and decaying world. 
And after establishing that, Jesus now turns to the question of authority. What is the source of his authority? What is the source of their authority? How are they to interact with the word of God? How do his disciples relate to the scriptures? Four critical statements for us this morning. The first appears in verse 17, and it's simply this. Jesus didn't void the scriptures. Jesus did not void the scriptures. Verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. This expression, the law and the prophets, is used in many places in the New Testament, and it's just a shorthand way of speaking about the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. It's a common way for the Jews of that day to refer to what we call the Old Testament. Sometimes they would... They would narrow it down even more and would simply refer to it as the law. But here, he's clearly speaking about the Old Testament. And notice he says that, I came. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. That's an interesting kind of statement. It expresses his his consciousness of his own mission. I, I came into the world, he says. I came into this world for a mission, for a purpose. The purpose for which I came was not to abolish or to demolish would be another way of speaking of it. Not to abolish or, or demolish the scriptures, but instead to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Well, what did Jesus mean when he talks about fulfilling the scriptures? He says, this is, this is why I came into the world, not to abolish, not to destroy, not to undo, but to fulfill. This is an interesting word, fulfill. It occurs about 90 times in the New Testament. Less than a third of those times refers to the fulfillment of prophecy, although when we hear the word fulfill, that's often what comes to our mind, the completion of a prophetic statement. And some people interpret the verse this way, that Jesus is saying, I came, my mission to come into the world was that all that was written about me in the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, all of those prophecies that I might fulfill, that I might complete. But in light of the further things he says here in this context, I don't believe that's what he's talking about. It's true. It's a true statement, but I don't believe that's his point here. He is not speaking about the fact that he is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies. The contrast here, if you'll notice, is between abolishing or breaking or destroying the law and fulfilling it. Less than a third of the uses of this word, plerao, the Greek, the Greek word to fulfill, speak prophetically, and in fact, the majority of them to speak about completion or, or practice. And I think that's what he's talking about here. I didn't come to do away with the law, to abolish the law, but to practice the law and the prophets. To practice 
He's not speaking here about his actions. He's not saying that I I came to live as a Jew under the rigors of the Old Testament. No, although that's true. Instead, what he is saying is, I came in order that my teaching might complete the Old Testament, might fill it out, that I might practice those things that are there in the Old Testament. Notice the contrast in verse 21 and following. This is the preamble. This is the lead-in to, really, the body of his sermon. And in verses 21 of chapter 5 and and following, there's a, a continual series of contrasts between what the Pharisees say about the law and what Jesus says. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, verse 22, but I say to you. And so Jesus is expositing the Old Testament here. He is drawing out in the balance of this sermon that which is is there in the Old Testament and has been there by God all along and has been covered up, encrusted in the layers of, of Pharisaical Judaism leading up to this point. So he fulfills the scriptures. He practices the scriptures and he does so by by reiterating their moral demands for righteousness in preparation for his coming kingdom. Again, notice the end of verse 20. He's talking here about who gets in and who doesn't get in. And he draws a contrast. The subject matter, if I can say it this way, of of the bulk of this sermon has to do with the Old Testament. And how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets? He begins here in verse 17, right? I didn't come to abolish the Law and the Prophets. That forms, and holding on to that thought, over to chapter 7 and verse 12, the sort of end of the sermon before he makes his, his appeal. He says in verse 12 of chapter 7, In everything, therefore, treat the people the same way you want them to treat you. We call that the golden rule, right? For this is the law and the prophets. You see it again. These two references, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 5, ending in verse 12 of chapter 7, form what Bible commentators call an inclusio. That's a big word. The basic idea is that these are brackets around the sermon. And they give us an important understanding of the context of the balance of this sermon. What is he talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? And what he is talking about is the Old Testament. He's talking about the law and the prophets. And he is going to to make a comparison between how it is understood in his day and how it should be understood how it rightly should be understood, and how it ought to rightly be applied to the people of his day. He's setting out the boundaries for his sermon. He's acting, as it were, in the, in the role of an Old Testament prophet. He is calling the people back to the Word of God. And he's calling them back to the Word of God in terms of its requirement for an internal righteousness, not merely an external adherence to the law. That it's all about what's going on inside 
not so much about what's going on on the outside. He is the king, and he is given to them, and I might say by application, he is giving to us the ethic that is required in order to live as a citizen of his kingdom. What do the citizens of the kingdom of God, what are they like? How must they live? And how does the Old Testament relate to all of this? If I want to put it very simply, living according to the golden rule fulfills the moral requirements of the Old Testament. How must we live? We must live according to the golden rule. That is the ethic of those who are citizens of God's kingdom. He's calling them back to the Old Testament, not away from the Old Testament. He is not voiding the scriptures. He is calling them to the scriptures. He is not lightening the load of the scriptures. He's driving the truth of the scriptures deep into people's hearts. And beloved, Christianity springs from the same scriptures. The truths that he will speak about beginning in verse 21 and following are very much applicable to us, even though the forms have passed. Jesus doesn't void the scriptures. The Old and New Testament were inspired by the same God. Is that right? His holy standards don't change. They don't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is the same today and forever. What he required, then he requires now. And it's all about the heart. He is interested in the heart. The specific manifestations of his will vary based on historical circumstances. We don't bring sheep into the temple anymore, right? Nobody came in here this morning with a sheep draped over your shoulders. That specific manifestation has passed away. But the deep principle that lies underneath it and behind it and and motivates it has not passed away at all. It still remains true. Why? Why is it that the ethic of the Old Testament remains with us even this day? The answer is simple. It's because the scriptures don't change. And that's the second critical statement here. The scriptures are binding upon us. Why? Because they do not change. Scriptures are binding upon us. Verse 18. For truly I say to you. This is a a very solemn way to introduce this statement. This would be something like, hey. This is important. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Pay attention. Until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Until all is accomplished. These two expressions, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. These are essentially synonymous kinds of statements. They are synonymous expressions, and and they are references 
to the end of this present world and the establishment of God's universal kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. What he is saying is that the the word of God remains binding upon the people of God until God remakes this heavens and earth. Until he fulfills all those things that he has set in place. Following Messiah's earthly kingdom, according to Revelation chapters 21 and 22, right? 2 Peter 3, 13, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and other places. Heavens and earth pass away. All is accomplished. Until that time, the scripture doesn't change and it remains binding. Notice the way he illustrates this reality. He says, verse 18, not a smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The smallest letter is a yod. It looks like a just like a little apostrophe, just a little teeny apostrophe. The smallest pen stroke is is a serif. It's it's just a little tick mark on the edge of a letter and it. The difference between having a seraph or not separates letters in the Hebrew alphabet. A resh, it looks like this, sort of a backwards L. And a daleth is the same thing, but it has a little tick on the top. Two different letters. Very small, minute pen strokes. Jesus is making a point here. He's saying that that not even the littlest, teeniest stroke of the pen will pass from the law. Not one single letter until all is accomplished. One commentator, and I'll trust his math, he he says there are 66,420 yods in the Hebrew Scriptures. Just that little, like a little apostrophe. Jesus says they're all important. They're all important. Every single letter in the word of God is important and will not cease until God brings the consummation of the ages. The word of God remains binding upon his people. This is the issue of inerrancy, isn't it? The reality that we have the very word of God and and cannot lose a part of it. We dare not give up any of it. You know, Jesus' attitudes to the scriptures are kind of vividly displayed, I think, in, in Matthew 22, verse 29. You can turn there if you'd like, page 983. We'll look at this passage quickly because by the time we get there in detail, you won't remember. Jesus is being confronted here in the final week before his crucifixion. And he's engaged in theological battle and dispute with the leadership of the nation. The Sadducees, those who primarily made up what's called the Sanhedrin or the ruling council. And this is where the priesthood came from. This is the aristocracy of Judaism. They denied the resurrection from the dead. 
And there was an ongoing dispute between them and the Pharisees who affirmed the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees had this, this riddle that they would ask the Pharisees and say, you believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, then, then answer this riddle. And so they proposed this problem to the Pharisees and, and it stumped them. And so they try it out on Jesus. Verse 23, on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Riddle. Now there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. Also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, ha, 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 therefore, right? Well, I'm not sure they were laughing, but I think they were laughing. Whose wife of the seven will she be? Gotcha. For they all had married her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus' response to them turns on the tense of a verb. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men who lived hundreds of years apart. He can only be their God if they are still living. And thus Jesus, from the Pentateuch, proves the resurrection of the dead. Verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus took the word of God very, very seriously. Right down to the verb tenses. Right down to the little yodes, the little seraphs, the little marks and ticks upon each and every letter. Scriptures are binding. Back to Matthew 5. Jesus is making an argument here from the lesser to the greater. By affirming that the smallest letter and the least stroke remain until the consummation of the age, he is saying that if the most insignificant part remain, then obviously the greater matters remain as well. What do we do with this? How do we apply this today? Let me suggest a few things for us. Because God has, has invested his word with eternal significance, we are bound by both duty and delight to invest ourselves in, in reading it and understanding it and applying it to our own lives. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? If it has this kind of eternal significance, then it's something that we ought to give ourselves to as his children. 
But here's the rub. We evangelicals have an appalling ignorance of the Old Testament because that's what he's talking about, right? It's the law and the prophets he's talking about. And yet when it comes to the, to the Old Testament, we have an appalling ignorance. It's flyover territory for most. We find it boring. We find it irrelevant. And yet Jesus says that he learned or, or that, it has, that it has eternally significant and binding authority over us. Can I try this idea out on you? Let me suggest to you that Jesus learned everything he knew about himself and his mission by his own study of the Old Testament. What I'm suggesting to you is that Jesus didn't learn about what it meant to be the Messiah of Israel by osmosis. That it wasn't poured into his head somehow. That it wasn't some truth that he accessed through his divine nature. In fact, the Gospel of Luke indicates just the opposite. That the man Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and man. And that for 30 years of his life, he gave himself to the very serious and thorough study of the word of God. So under the leading of the spirit of God, when he burst forth in public ministry as Messiah, here was a man who was steeped in the word of God. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. This is the Sunday afternoon of his resurrection. There's a couple of his disciples and they are leaving Jerusalem. And as they're walking from the city, they're talking to themselves back and forth and and basically saying, I don't get it. What, What happens? And Jesus walks along up to them and and their eyes are prevented from understanding who he is. And and he begins to fall in with them in their journey and he begins to speak with them. Verse 25, he says to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Folks, that was the Bible study to end all Bible studies, right? The thorough exposition of the Old Testament and what it has to say about Christ. Here was a man steeped in the word of God, the God man himself. And as he walked with those discouraged disciples, he opened the Old Testament with them and began to exposit it to them. We are poor. We are impoverished in our understanding of the Old Testament. And because we are impoverished in our understanding of the Old Testament, Our Christian lives are impoverished. 
That leads us to our third critical statement. Flippancy towards the scriptures is serious. Flippancy is serious. If Jesus doesn't void the scriptures and if the scriptures are binding upon us, then then flippancy towards them is a very serious thing. Verse 19. Whoever then knows one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, there's an implication, an obvious implication of the permanence and authority of the Scripture. If God is is very serious about the Scripture and preserving the Scripture, then he is very serious about how we handle the Scripture. Both our teaching and our practice. Whoever then annuls, he says. Annuls. This is an interesting word. It means more than just an isolated breaking of a commandment. It, it speaks about an attitude towards the commandment in which it's thought as non-existent or, or null or void. Playing fast and loose with the word of God. Whoever plays fast and loose with the least of these commandments and teaches other people to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, he says. Now, when the Jews examined Genesis to Deuteronomy, right, the first five books called the Pentateuch, they discerned that there are 613 commandments given. They broke them down and said there were 248 positive commandments, 365 negative commandments. Now, if you have a legal mind and you figure out there are 613 commandments, you can have a field day. And the field day you can have is trying to figure out priority, right? We need to rank these. We need to weight these. We need to put them in order of importance and significance. And so this was a a common thing among the Pharisees, the scribes, to try to discern which commandments were most important. It opens up all kinds of wonderful possibilities for dispute and wrangling. You remember when they approached Jesus there in that last week of his life? They asked him, which is the most, what, important commandment? That's the whole issue. If there's 613, which one's most important? And which one's least important? Jesus answers them, of course, right? And he says, it's all summed up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' point here in verse 19 is because he doesn't void the Scripture but rather establishes their ongoing validity, therefore the commandments contained in the Scripture remain with them. It's not about which one is most important, which one's least important, which ones do I have to obey, which ones can I ignore. It's the wrong approach. If that's how we approach the word of God, we betray a heart of unbelief. 
We don't come to the word of God and say, okay, what part of it am I going to believe? What part's most important? What part can I just lay aside, leave off? It's all important. In fact, he says, verse 19, when you get to the least of them, and he's, he's adopting their way of thinking, when you, when you come to the least of them, if you, if you leave that one off, it will not exclude you from the kingdom, but it will affect your place in the kingdom. That kind of attitude towards the word of God will affect your place in the kingdom. If you want a place of great reward and prominence in the kingdom, verse 19, then be very, very serious, studious, and attentive to the entire word of God. It's not permissible, he says, to annul by ignoring or modifying or disobeying even the littlest things. My friends, this place is a pretty heavy load, doesn't it, on those who want to teach the word of God? James says in James 3.1, let not many of you become what? Teachers. Why? Because you will incur a stricter judgment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, we see a similar thought. Paul's there talking about a man's work in terms of, of leading a church. He says there's only one foundation, verse 11, and the foundation is Christ Jesus. <coughs> But we build on that foundation, and, and how we build on that foundation is a serious matter. He says, some build with gold and silver and precious stones, verse 12. Others, wood, hay, and straw. But in the end, each man's work will become evident because it will be revealed by fire, the quality of his work. If it remains, verse 14, he receives a reward. Verse 15, if his work is burned up, he suffers loss. But he himself will be saved as yet through the fire. It's the same basic idea. Same basic idea as Jesus is expressing back here in Matthew 5. To get it wrong has a consequence. Not the loss of your salvation, but the loss of reward. To get it right in both how you teach it and how you live it brings great reward. Study to show yourself approved. A workman who does not need to be what? Ashamed, handling rightly the word of truth. A workman who does not handle rightly the word of truth should be ashamed. This is not just pastors and elders. This is true of all of us as we open the word of God. There are eternal consequences at stake. And yet we live in a, in a day and an age when, when people are very flippant with the word of God. Very casual with the word of God. Very quick to express their own opinion about what the Word of God says or, or whether it's binding on them or not. 
redefining terms, normalizing behaviors that God forbids. We live in scary times. Let me give you just a little principle to take with you when it, when it comes to the Old Testament. And we're talking here about the Old Testament, aren't we? The law of the prophets. Let me give you this little rule of thumb to take with you. God is like a father. In the sense that when a father gives a command, it stays in effect until he changes it. How many times does a father have to tell his son, take out the trash after dinner? In order for his son to be obligated to take out the trash after dinner. Just once. It remains in effect until and unless the father amends the command. The same is true of the word of God. What God has spoken in his word remains in effect, in force, unless and until God changes it. And even when he changes the the external manifestation of a particular activity, the internal principle behind it remains in effect. It's unchanging because it reflects the character of God. So we come to the Old Testament, right? And we read books like Leviticus and Exodus. And we go, what do I do with all that? Build a parapet around the roof of my house. Get rid of all my clothing, right, that has mixed fabric. We tend to just marginalize it all, push it all away, and say it doesn't mean anything anymore, but it does mean something. The problem is that we're not willing and able to take the time to penetrate to what it is that brought God to say those things. We need to find those enduring principles and to bring them forward. The church is impoverished because of its lack of understanding of the Old Testament. Let me ask you a question. If you had a Bible that had no New Testament, could you share the gospel with somebody? Could you lead someone to faith in Christ without benefit of the New Testament? I hope your answer is yes, because the apostles could. Everything they wrote was drawn from the Old Testament. When Paul says in in 1 Timothy, right, 3.15, that all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable, right, for reproof, for teaching, for training in righteousness, the man of God might be equipped for every good work. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. We have a lot of work to do. That takes us to our fourth and final critical statement in verse 20. Externalism of the scriptures is deadly. Externalism of the scriptures is deadly. Verse 19 spoke about one's relative place in the kingdom. By the way, let me just say in verse 19 that really is interesting. Because what it means is that, a, that a, a little pastor somewhere in a small country church that only has, you know, a couple of dozen people who faithfully through his life lives and teaches the scriptures accurately has great reward in the kingdom of God. And a mega church pastor with hundreds or not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of people coming who, who deals with the scriptures in a slipshod way 
will be little in the kingdom of God. And yet, how often we, we judge by what we see. Isn't that true? We judge God's favor and success in outward measures, and yet Jesus says here, it has to do with your faithfulness in the little things. My friends, externalism is deadly, verse 20. For I say to you, lest your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who are the scribes? They were the experts in Jewish law. They gave their entire lives to, to learning more and more and more about the Old Testament. They were the experts. They're often mentioned in, in conjunction with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were experts too. They were experts in how to live righteously by rigorously adhering to the literal obedience of the rules and the regulations that the scribes drew out of the scriptures. So the two of them go hand in hand. One is a, a set of, of theologians. The other one is a set of practitioners. And they are both giving their lives to minute understanding and living in accordance with the word of God. Now, that sounds like a righteous person, doesn't it? I mean, if anybody is going to make it into Messiah's kingdom, it clearly has to be those who have given themselves to understanding the scriptures and to living in accordance with the scriptures. That makes Jesus' statement here in verse 20 absolutely shocking. Absolutely shocking. The most religious, fastidiously so, people of that day, he says, unless you do better than that, you will not make it into Messiah's kingdom. I can imagine people's jaws dropped. If there's no hope for them, what hope is there for me? This statement, by the way, sets the stage for the rest of the sermon. This is the lead-in statement to the balance of this sermon. He's going from this point forward to, to elaborate on what it means to fulfill the law in its original intent and purpose. To explain what it means to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is, is they had externalized everything. They had turned it into a set of do's and don'ts, rules to be kept, things to do and things to avoid. And they were perfect at it. They were the best rule keepers that have ever lived. Jesus says it's not about rules. It's about a radical commitment to righteousness that lies beneath all of the external forms. It means getting to the heart of the issue. You know, on the surface, externalizing God's law can be quite appealing. I mean, if, if everybody just lived according to the, the law in the Bible, right? Wouldn't we live in a good society? Wouldn't that be good? What about a church? What if we just, we just sort of lived ourselves and taught our children to, to, to be obedient to all the things that are in the Bible? It's very appealing. It's very, very appealing. The problem is it's damning. 
Because what happens is you end up with whitewashed tombs that inside contain dead man's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. It's not about the keeping of the do's and don'ts. It's about the eternal principles that lie underneath the historical manifestations. It's easy as a parent to focus on the external behaviors of your children and get them cleaned up. So they're, you know, they're, they're good kids. It's easy in, for church leadership to focus on the external behaviors within the body and, and just get everybody kind of all cleaned up and walking in the same direction. And Jesus said, listen, the best that have ever lived at that kind of lifestyle, they don't make it into the kingdom. You can't clean your children up enough to guarantee them their entrance. You cannot clean yourself up enough to guarantee you entrance. You need a righteousness that is far deeper, far more radical, far more profound, far more transformational than anything you can conceive. Yet how often we fall prey to the externalization of what it means to follow Christ. Sure, I'm a disciple of Christ. I do this and that, and I don't do this and that, right? I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? One of the dangers of fundamentalism, their serious commitment to the Word of God, they have forgotten the Spirit of God becomes externalized. I'm going to be out for the next two weeks. I'm going to be up at or out in Fontana at Summit Bible Church, filling a pulpit out there for, for Jeremy. He's on a well-deserved two-week vacation. So they asked me to come and to fill the pulpit, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to be there and to preach among all of those believers, some of them that are brand spanking new believers. It's going to be a great time. So I'm not going to be here for two weeks. Pastor Vince will fill the pulpit and you will profit. When I get back, we're going to start in verse 21, chapter 5, and it is going to tear our socks off. It's going to tear our socks off. Jesus is going to address some topics They're going to absolutely cause us to sit up and take notice. Not in the external law-keeping way, but delving down into the deep heart of the matter. He's going to address topics like murder, adultery, divorce, swearing of oaths, personal retaliation, requirements for love, He'll talk about giving to the poor. He'll talk about prayer. He'll talk about fasting. He'll talk about riches. He'll talk about worry. And he'll talk about judgment. And he's going to speak to us in a way that is going to confront our 21st century values and culture. Listen, if it's just about checking things off, I've got this Christianity thing nailed. Right? Go down the list. Uh, you know, murder, nah. You know, adultery, I haven't done that. You know, retaliation, no, nah, I don't do that. I, I give uh, a little money to the guy on the side of the freeway once in a while. I pray a little. Worry? Who, me? Worry? 
He's going to bore right in. He's going to bore right in because you know what? It's way deeper than the external manifestations. It's all about the heart. May Jesus challenge us and may we be open to hear the challenge. And may God in his grace grant us a a real righteousness, not of our own doing, a righteousness that comes to us only by grace through faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus. But a righteousness, my friends, that has a real moral, ethical outworking in our lives. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But we are saved to live radically as salt and light in a world that is dark and decaying. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving your word through the centuries. Thank you that we live in a day and an age, Father, in which we have unhindered access to the oracles of the living God. Our Father, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Oh Lord, I I pray that you would help us to seriously contemplate the responsibility that lies upon us by having the Scriptures in our own native tongue. That we might freely read them we might freely meditate upon them. That we have access, O oh Lord, to an incredible wealth of teaching materials, both on the Internet and through books and libraries. Our Father, we are a generation who does not lack resources, and yet, O oh Lord, we are a generation that lacks obedience. Our Father, I confess we are shallow. I confess that we are distracted. I confess, our Father, that we are quick to assume the Bible means certain things. I confess, O Lord, that we are lazy. And I pray, O God, that you would help us in our place of great need. O Lord, let us not walk from this place just burdened with guilt. Lord, let us flee to the cross of Christ and where we have sinned in these matters, let us confess our sin to you and let us rise up and walk in newness of life. Confirmed in our own heart and mind and in dependence upon your Holy Spirit to to begin to, to do those first things again. May we be a people of the book. May it reign supreme in our thinking. May we have the courage in the face of all obstacles to be able to say, thus saith the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.